All right, everybody. I love the fellowship. It's awesome to hear it. Haven't heard it in a long time in this size. This is great. Hey, if you guys want to start making your way back into the sanctuary, I'm going to introduce our next speaker. So Pastor Nick Batsick is an associate pastor at Wayside Presbyterian on Signal Mountain. I've had the opportunity over the past couple months to get to know him. Uh, he has an incredible personality, very funny, and he has a brilliant mind. I think you guys are going to really enjoy what he has to share with you. He's also the associate editor of Ligonier Ministries, um, and Ligonier has uh, blessed, blessed us with some free resources. And if you guys, when you go out of these doors, if you turn to the right, you'll see the Ligonier table. And they have two uh, editions of their Table Talk magazine that they want to give to you guys for free. The, it's a January and February issue. The January issue is actually really interesting because they do this uh, survey of the church in America on the state of theology. And I think you guys would be shocked and somewhat saddened to find out what's going on uh, in some of the churches in America. But great resources. Um, he also wrote a book called False Teaching, which I feel like is very appropriate for everything that we're talking about. And you can uh, go to ligonier.org and find this book. I recommend getting it. So if you, uh, if you would, please give a round of applause to Pastor Nick Batsik. Well, thank you. It is good to be with you, and it's always daunting to speak after Vody. so be kind. Um, Vody and I were driving downtown today, and a car stopped in front of us, and um, a girl threw what looked like a yogurt drink out the window, and Vody said, oh no, don't do that. And I said, Vody, roll the window down and yell, climate justice. <laughs> now would be the perfect time to do that. Um, I'm not sure if that would be included, but as Vody has noted, um, over the past three decades, really, ethicists, scientists, and politicians have adopted institutional language from the academy. They've strategically packaged agendas, as you know, and political policies by affixing the word justice to it. Uh, we now hear, as you've heard already, about economic justice, environmental justice, racial justice, gender justice, and far and away the most sinister of all, reproductive justice. Um, that is steadily gaining traction in the media. The idea there is that if a woman is going to have equality with a man, she needs to be able to kill her unborn child, and that's justice. If that doesn't just shatter the whole concept of worldly perversions of justice, I don't know what does. Um, and, and all of that, all of those agendas are shorthanded with the catch-all phrase social justice, as we've heard. Um, that kind of becomes a Trojan horse for people. They can mean many different things when they speak about social justice. Now, at the outset of this talk, and I want to define for us two concepts that are interrelated. One is justice, one is mercy. And I want to explain the source of those two attributes, characteristics, and then I want to talk about um, principles of them. How, how do we define them? What are the, the principles bound up in them? And then I want to talk to you about how the gospel is really at stake 
in this conversation, in this discussion. Um, before I do, I want to just go over three difficulties that we deal with when we approach this subject. The first is that um, the first is that in many of the categories that use the, the term justice, there is a mixture of truth and error. That makes it hard to untangle what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. So that's the first danger. And, and in that danger, then there are phrases like reproductive justice in which there is absolutely no truth. It is sheer evil being promoted. Um, the second danger and difficulty, I'm sorry, second difficulty that we approach in this subject is that many of the issues that are classified as, as justice are actually presented as issues of mercy and compassion. And so you, you have a conflation of justice and mercy. Um, and then it doesn't become merciful and it becomes unjust and you lose both justice and mercy by conflating them and commingling them and confusing what they are. And then the third difficulty, and, and I say this with great care tonight, is that many Christians have never really sought to define justice and mercy biblically and have not really come to understand how they, they play into the gospel and, and how that then affects us as men and women that are called to be just and merciful in union with Jesus Christ. So I want to kind of lay a biblical foundation for this difficult subject and help us understand especially these two attributes of God, justice and mercy. Now, the source of justice and mercy. We can't start a conversation on justice and mercy at the civil sphere or on the, the horizontal plane if we don't understand the vertical plane. The Bible very clearly states this in Proverbs 28.5, evil men do not understand justice. Right. Evil men, unregenerate, do not understand justice, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. The Lord is the source of justice because God is infinitely just. God doesn't have justice. He doesn't have an amount of justice. God is just. Isaiah 45, 21, the covenant God declares there is no God besides me. A just God, a just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. God is infinitely just. Um, this is why God has to punish evil and sin. It is in accord with his holy, righteous character. All his attributes work together. They don't run contrary to one another. But he must punish sin and evil and injustice. Now, God is also the source of mercy. The Bible everywhere says that God is merciful. I love that verse in Micah where it says, Who is a God like you? And, and Micah says that God is abundant in mercy, that he delights in mercy. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 2 says, God who is rich. I want you to think about that, rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy. Um, God is infinite in his mercy. He is infinitely merciful. He is infinitely just. And so you can't even have this conversation. The, the discussion about justice on a civil sphere or in society is a pointless conversation if we don't have a God who is himself just and merciful. This is his world, as was prayed earlier. We live and move and have our being in him. 
We breathe his air. We're his image bearers. We are to reflect those attributes of God. That's what Adam was created to do. He was to be a righteous image bearer on the earth, and he was to show forth manifestations of God's glory by looking like God. Um, We are taught to be merciful because of the covenant compassion and mercy of God. Jesus said, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Now, that's all well and good until we have to define these terms, and Vodi has defined justice quite well. I want to recommend a book to you that I'm going to quote from here in a second. Um, Cal Beisner, he taught at Covenant College many, many, many decades ago, um, has written a little pamphlet I want to recommend to you. It's called Social Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and the Gospel. Social Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and the the Gospel. Here's how Beisner defines biblical justice on the the civil sphere or on the societal plane. He says, justice is rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone is due in accord with the righteous standard of God's moral law. So justice is rendering to each one impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in accord with the righteous standard of God's law. Now, impartially, um, God has placed certain individuals in authority in the civil sphere, and they are required under his divine authority to render fair outcomes and judgments without discrimination on the basis of social status, ethnicity, or socioeconomic considerations. That's the principle of impartiality. And it comes straight out of the civil law that God gave to Israel. In Exodus 23, 2 and 3, we read this, and this is very important. Exodus 23, 2 and 3, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And then in verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So you can't side with the rich and you can't side with the poor in a dispute. There is impartiality at every level. That's what justice is. In that sense, on the horizontal plane. Now, proportionality is the principle that the punishment must fit the crime. So it would be unjust to punish someone excessively um, for what they did. It would be unjust not to punish them enough in the civil sphere. Um, And the reward should be commensurate with the good. So there is to be a just weights and just measures at every level in in not showing discrimination, in impartiality, and in proportionality. Now, um, proportionality is also found in the Bible, right? Genesis 9, 6. Noah steps off the ark, and God says, he gives him recreation mandates. He, he renews what Adam got in the garden. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the animals. Noah's standing as a typical second Adam, a type of Christ to come. And, and in that context, God says to him, he institutes the death penalty. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, because he is in the image of God. That's proportionality. The punishment fits the crime. And 
Uh, later in the Proverbs, we learn all kinds of principles of proportionality. Um, the man who works diligently will reap bountifully. Yes. The lazy man will want and have nothing. Um, that's, not, that's not meant to be uncharitable. Those are principles of justice. And we need to be clear about where we get principles of justice and what we believe and what we teach others about that. Now, Herman Bovink, he was one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. He was a 19th century Dutch Reformed theologian, set out three guiding principles of biblical justice. Here they are. Number one, the guilty person by, may by no means be considered innocent. Number two, the righteous may not be condemned. And number three, the rights of the poor, the oppressed, the day laborer, the widow, and the orphan especially may not be perverted, but on the contrary must be upheld for their protection and support. Those are the three biblical principles of civic justice. The guilty cannot be considered innocent, the righteous may not be condemned, and those who are oppressed or in need in society need their rights upheld and need to be defended. Now, Scripture also sets out for us principles of mercy. Um, in the Old Testament civil law, there was those laws about the owner of a field not being able to, to trim the outer edges of his field because God is showing his people that they are to be merciful as he was. That's not justice. You wouldn't be punished if you didn't do that in this life. There wasn't civil punishment for you cutting the edges of your field. God was embedding in the law these principles of mercy to teach his people that just as they are to be just, they also are to be merciful. Um, Christians are called by God to be a generous people everywhere in Scripture. Jesus said, give, it will be given to you. Paul said, God loves a joyful giver. We are to be merciful. We are to be compassionate. We are to care for the needs of others. A further principle of mercy is that we're called to do good to all, especially to the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. Now, it would be easy for us to sort of write off our lack of generosity with a verse like this, and I don't want us to leave here doing that, but when we're talking about biblical mercy... We also have to recognize that there are spheres in which God calls us to live and to exercise that mercy. Let us do good to all as we have opportunity, especially to those of the household of faith. This is where the early church theologian Augustine got his doctrine of moral proximity. Uh, moral proximity. He, he will um, talk about this at length in many of his writings, but this is one of the clearest statements of what moral proximity means. Listen to this. All men are to be loved equally, but since you cannot do good to all, you are to pay special regard to those who by the accidents of time or place or circumstances are brought into the closer connection with you. Since you cannot consult for the good of them all, you must take the matter according as each man happens for the time being to be more closely connected to you. That means a man is to take care of his home is to show love and mercy to his wife and children, and then in our churches, and then in our communities. 
wherever God has placed us. We can't take on the whole world. One of the, one of the worst parts of the social justice movement is that, and, and Vody touched on this with globalization, the whole world is being just streamed into your brain and you're being told, what are you doing about it? And then they're saying nothing, so we'll do it at a governmental level. And the biblical model is that we're called to be faithful in the spheres in which God has placed us, to be just and merciful, especially in these closely connected areas of life, without partiality and according to proportionality. Um, Let me say this just briefly. In this life, there will never be perfect justice and mercy. Uh, Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. And that doesn't mean we don't care for the poor. But it's to recognize that this is not, this is not our home. Here we have no continuing city. We seek the one to come. Abraham looked for a better city that had better foundations. This is not it. If 2020 didn't teach us that, I mean, it could get way worse. But that, and this is not it. Um, I love Chattanooga. We've lived here a year and a half. It's beautiful. This is not it. Um, so there's, there's not going to be any perfect justice and mercy in this life. Augustine noted, though, that in this life, there's just enough justice from God, where God meets out justice, that we know he is perfectly justice and will, on judgment day, render perfect justice against all evil, and there's enough mercy in this world that we can know that one day God's going to make known the full manifestation of his mercy on vessels of mercy that he prepared for glory. Isn't that awesome? So this is never going to be a utopia here, but there is enough justice, there is enough mercy, and there will always be, as we've heard, different outcomes in this life. We can call these inequalities, but they're not injustices. Um, In God's sovereignty, there are differing outcomes for any number of reasons. Some are physical, some are intellectual, some are circumstantial in nature. Look, almost everybody in this room looks better than me. And And I can't do anything about that. And the older I get, the more I hate looking in a mirror. And that's gonna have to be okay. I'm gonna have to be okay with that. Um, so God, God measures out differences, physical, intellectual, circumstantial. Not everybody gets the same opportunities in life in God's sovereign providence. Um, we have to consider differences in family, physical size, strength, intellectual capacity. Um, Those are just realities that are never going to go away. And we need to just embrace them. Um, In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul says, who makes you differ from another and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you didn't indeed receive it, why do you glory as though you did not receive it? So these these are gifts from God that make us different. Even as we're all from the same lump of clay, fallen in Adam. Um, Now, what I want to get to is I do worry that the church, and I care most for the church, um, will lose the gospel if we don't get biblical principles of justice and mercy. Um, The word justice comes from the Hebrew root word, uh, zedek, righteousness, 
and from the Greek word uh, dikaios, which is also righteousness. So when in your Bible you read the word righteousness, it's the same word as just or justice. Um, And that's important because when we move out of the Old Testament, and one of the things we have to remember, and and I want you to think very carefully about this, there, there has only been one time in human history that there was ever a society with perfectly just laws, and that was Old Covenant Israel. And that's not God's theocratic nation today. I will argue with you on that. That was in redemptive history until the Redeemer came. And they had perfect laws. And you know what? Every generation, you know what happened with every generation? They became as evil or worse than the nations around them. It never changed their hearts. It never produced righteousness so much so that Habakkuk, the prophet, actually says at one point, the law is powerless. It didn't produce justice. It didn't make the people merciful. It didn't cause them to walk uprightly. And and so when you come into the New Testament, that's the great answer that's being answered. Paul's letter to the Romans, he he opens with those words in in Romans 1, 18 and following about the unrighteousness of the Gentile world and the catalog of depravity. And then he turns to the Jews and he says, but you, O Jew, who, who judge another, but practice the same things. And then he comes to the crescendo in chapter 3, and, and he reaches into the Psalms, and he says, there's none righteous. No, not one. Isaiah had said this, hadn't he, in Isaiah 53, when he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah earlier had stood and said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There's none righteous. That's the plight. Um, Tim Brindle and I were talking back there, and Tim said, we're all, in, we're all in justice. I'm in justice. You're in justice. Sin is in justice. Um, by nature, there's no one righteous. And so God can't set aside his justice and, and forgive us if we're unjust, because if he did that and set aside his justice, then he wouldn't be just. So, so one old theologian said there's a crisis before the judgment seat. How can the infinitely holy God forgive and, and heal and restore an unjust person like me? And that's where Romans is moving, isn't it? And in chapter 8, I love that. What, uh, <laughs> what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, Christ did, God did, by condemning sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh so that, so that in the, the, the full outpouring of his wrath on Jesus at the cross, with my sin imputed to him and your sins imputed to him, that Jesus satisfied divine justice. For unjust people like us, Peter says... The just for the unjust. There's only been one just person, truly and really, who's ever walked the face of the earth. The God-man. The eternal son. And, and, and he took all of our injustices on himself. There's a beautiful picture of this. Uh, Welsh pastor Jeff Thomas tells he, um, he is 
envisioning Jesus coming to be baptized by John. And you know that baptism symbolized the need to have your sins washed away, but Jesus doesn't have any sins. So why is he being baptized? Because he's going to be the sin bearer. He's going to, he's going to represent his people. He's going to be made sin for us, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And, and Thomas says, I like to envision it like this. Here John is baptizing people in the Jordan, and there's a murderer and adulterer and a thief and a drunk and a... And a and, 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 every kind of wicked person you can imagine and Jesus and a backbiter and a gossip and a greedy, lascivious man. And there's Jesus standing in a long train of sinners, every one of them unjust. And then he steps into the water. He steps into the water. And those waters symbolically polluted with the sins of the people, symbolically, are poured over the sinless son because that's what's going to happen to him at the cross for us so that when we trust in Jesus Christ he then gives us his righteousness his perfect standard his perfect record he kept the law perfectly the only one who who never sinned he was born under the law uh, William Still, I love this saying, William Still, this great old Scottish uh, theologian, says the greatest thing Jesus ever did was to die sinlessly. The greatest thing Jesus ever did was to die sinlessly. And then he gives us that righteousness, and he, he credits it to us so that before God we are righteous, and then he puts his spirit in us, and then he begins to transform us and to make us into righteous and merciful people. So that what the world around us needs the most right now, as much as we should care about political theory and everything we're talking about, is a gospel that will take unjust men and women and will bring them to God and will turn them into just and merciful men. You know, I'm sometimes ashamed to ask myself the question, when was the last time I really pleaded with the Lord for real gospel-proclaiming spiritual revival, because that's what we need. And when that happens, Christians become salt and light. You become salt and light in the world. We go out into every occupation, and Christian business people do their business justly, and they model how that should be done. And in whatever sphere, political, business, healthcare, whatever, as difficult as it will be for Christians, I know it will, but we are called by Jesus not to retreat, but to go out and be salt and light and to model what real justice and real mercy is. You know, it was Christians that ended the slave trade. William Wilberforce, yes. a Calvinist at that. <laughs> you can laugh. <laughs> I'm Presbyterian. I had to do that. Um, it, was, it was William Wilberforce who was... Who was uh, greatly impacted by John Newton, also a Calvinist. John Newton, <laughs> who, who was himself a slave trader at one point. Do you understand? This is how it works. When the gospel changes us, then God sends us out. And we want to live just and merciful lives, resting in the fact that Christ is powerful to save unjust sinners like us. Uh, whatever else is going to be said um, tomorrow, I hope that you'll meditate 
on the need that we have to, to ground ourselves in God's word, to understand what God has said true justice and true mercy is, and that we would understand continually our need for the one who, though he knew no sin, was made sin for us, that we, through his suffering, might become the righteousness of God by faith in Christ alone. That's the good news of God's justice and mercy for sinners like us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would quicken our hearts and our minds as we consider um, evil and perverted forms of justice and a world that is hellish in its actions, its desires, its commitments. We pray that you would make us a people, Lord Jesus, who rejoice constantly that you have redeemed unjust people like us. We pray that you would give us confidence in the gospel to transform lives. We pray that you would make us a people who rest, rest in the grace that's in the Lord Jesus, even as we sojourn through this fallen world. We pray, oh God, that you would make the people present here to be salt and light in their communities, that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would use them to bring you glory and to see those around them come to know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.